Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It is time to bring in Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist and blogger at MLiveGo on the Bloomberg. Remember to send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net. Sign up for his daily free email newsletter and follow Dave on Twitter at The One Dave. All right, The One Dave. What are you looking at today? I was looking at cruise line operators. Yeah, it's a good day for transportation stocks in general. You can put the cruise lines together with the airlines. And uh, I'm sure you're United because of the United Continental Report. Exactly. As well, right? I'm sure you were looking at Norwegian cruise lines uh, as far as uh, focusing on that industry. Uh, they uh, expect to raise their uh, earnings forecast for this year, talking about booming demand in their main markets around the world. And that's saying something when, you know, there's so much of a focus on, you know, whether economies outside the U.S. are doing as well or perhaps headed for some weakness uh, relative to the U.S. And yet, you know, you've got all these stocks moving up and Norwegian Cruise Lines has the second biggest gain in the S&P 500 now. It's up more than 8%. You know where the, just sorry, but you know where the demand is coming from? China. That would make sense. You know, you've got people who have more wealth uh, that are more able to travel. And, and so it stands to reason uh, that you'd be getting the demand from China. You know, United Continental, I mean, they're talking about raising their earnings forecast for this year at a time when fuel prices are going up. And we've seen other companies cutting their projections. So, you know, that that's the positive surprise there. Uh, you know, you got United up seven and a half percent, American Delta Southwest all higher. Uh, we should point out, too, that uh, Royal Caribbean and uh, Carnival are following Norwegian cruise lines leads. So those are a couple of areas that uh, you know, definitely get your attention in this market. All right. Uh, one area that's getting my attention is the underperformance of tech stocks. today. The Nasdaq certainly underperforming the S&P and Dow Jones. What's behind that? Well, it doesn't help matters that Alphabet's down. You know, the owner of Google, this $5 billion fine imposed by the European Union. I should point out, though, I mean, those two classes of shares that are in the S&P 500, the uh, uh, the voting class A, which is the ticker G-O-O-G-L, and the non-voting class C, which is G-O-O-G, they're only down about a quarter of a yeah, percent at this know, point. that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, this is the biggest fine ever of its type. It certainly is a big headline. The reaction is de minimis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, people anticipating that the EU was going to weigh in. Uh, this has been playing out for some time, so it's not like it snuck up on anyone. Right. And just looking at you know, Alphabet's performance, I mean, you see just in terms of how much they earn in a quarter. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about $9 billion. They could pay right. it off with a month and a half worth of earnings. Let's get a little bit more insight on exactly what this fine was and why stock investors just really don't care. Shara Ovide joins us now. She's a technology columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Um, we're talking about this $5 billion fine by the European Union. Can you just give us why Google was fined uh, this way and why shareholders are just shrugging it off? 
Sure. So basically what the European regulators said was that Google has been illegally abusing its power over Android, which is the operating system that powers something like 85% of smartphones in the world. And the the Europeans basically said Google um, illegally compelled the companies that make um, devices that run Android software. So that would be companies like uh, Samsung and HTC and LG that make phones, um, Google compelled them to install other Google apps on those Android phones, including things like the Google Search app, uh, the Chrome web browser. Um, and the Europeans said that this was sort of an illegal abuse of Google's power over Android. And as for why um, investors don't care, look, as you guys said, this has been telegraphed for a long time. This investigation has been ongoing. And it's a little bit hard to know exactly how this might crimp Google's revenue and profits. But, you know, we're now in a world where Google has become the de facto um you know, starting point for a lot of people on their phones, whether that's YouTube or the Chrome browser or search, certainly. And no matter what regulators do, the question is, um, has will will the rule changes or will Google's behavior changes do anything to change the status quo of Google's power in the smartphone world? And you have to bear in mind, too, we've seen this movie before. Go back a couple of decades the EU regulators told Microsoft they had to uh, break up, in essence, the uh, Internet Explorer browser from the Windows operating system. It's the same thing, only it's playing out now with mobile phones. And Microsoft seems to have survived just fine in the last couple of decades. And so here we are. It's the same situation, you know, that, that Google's facing. And, you know, at least we have a precedent that suggests it may not be the end of the world. Well, Shira, I just want to understand Android as the operating system. It's a Google product, right? It is a Google product, yes. So they they don't make money directly from Android, but yes, it is a product that Google makes and distributes. They got 2 billion monthly active users. That's the largest installed base of any operating system. And that fits into the Google Play Store. So you've got what, 3 million plus apps on the Play Store, what would be the technical consequences of separating Google from the actual operating system of mobile phones? Yeah, f fair question. Um, I think the most honest answer is we don't know exactly what will be the consequence of this um, EU crackdown on Google and how Android operates. Um, what it could mean is in the future, if you buy an Android phone, whether it's a Samsung phone or an HTC phone or somebody else's phone, um, maybe it won't have the Google search app installed on it automatically. Maybe it won't have the Chrome web browser installed on it automatically, yeah. right? And look, th 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 those kinds of defaults do matter. That is why uh, companies make deals so their phones come pre-installed with all those apps because people tend to use whatever is already on their phone rather than seeking out those um, apps or internet services on their own.
All right. Uh, so, you know, we started out talking about the underperformance of NASD of the NASDAQ index. And so it seems like it, it's pretty clear that this is a slap on the wrist for Google uh, with the fine. It's not going to materially alter their outlook. Netflix, perhaps, is in a different situation. You are seeing those shares uh, continue declining today after uh, yesterday's decline, which wasn't as bad as it could have been. And I guess I'm trying to figure out, is this sort of the moment of truth, do you think, Shira, uh, for Netflix, uh, just with respect to they actually start to face some challenges with their business model of raising money and then burning it? I think probably not yet. Um, look, the thing about Netflix is it's pretty easy to argue that one quarter or even two quarters um, of soft uh, subscriber growth or subscriber numbers um, is a blip. That If you look at Netflix's track record over the long term, it is a pretty amazing story of a company that has managed to um, gain a huge number of users in a short period of time and for the most part is still adding to its user base even in a country like the United States where something like half of all households with Internet access are Netflix subscribers. It's pretty impressive. Um, you know, but the, the thing about Netflix, right, is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, that people's investors' belief that Netflix will keep growing gives it the money, both from the debt markets and its equity value, gives Netflix the money to keep spending on programming so that it can gain more users. And if one part of that virtuous circle starts to uh, kind of collapse a little bit, or if people believe it might start to collapse, then the, the whole cycle doesn't work, right? That if investors believe, okay, maybe Netflix isn't going to grow to the moon, or at least um, it's not going to grow as quickly as we thought in terms of um, subscriber numbers. Maybe they're less willing to um, loan money to Netflix to fund its programming costs. And if that's the case, then maybe Netflix can't spend as much as it has been. And then maybe it doesn't get as many subscribers as people thought. And then the whole thing starts to come unraveled. So, we don't know the impact. It's only one quarter, but remember that Netflix basically lives or dies based based on the kind of faith of investors, and that faith could be tested now. Shiro, Netflix has what one hundred and thirty million subscribers paying every month. Correct. That's a lot of cash flow, isn't it? Well, it's a lot of cash flow in theory, but if you look at Netflix's cash flow, it's negative to the tune of several billion dollars a year. Um, and they've said that the free cash flow is going to be negative three to four billion dollars this year. And the reason for that is, yeah, there's a lot of customers coming in the door paying their bills every month, but there's even more money going out the door for Netflix to pay for, you know, Orange is the New Black and Stranger Things and all the other um, literally hundreds of new shows and movies that it airs on a yearly basis. So it's spending more than it's it's taking in. I think there's supposed to be about 700 new programs on Netflix, original programming. Dave, you're shaking your head. The shares in Netflix are down yeah. about nine-tenths of a That's percent. That's a lot to watch, no question. Yeah, Netflix shares are back to where they were a little more than a month ago. So, I mean, yeah, you saw the reaction uh, late uh, Monday, early yesterday. Stock bounced back, closed with a loss of a little more than 5% after falling as much as 14%. Yeah, it's lower today, but 
two-thirds of a percent at the moment, so it's not like uh, things are falling apart, at least in the eyes of investors when they look at Netflix. Yeah, Netflix shares uh, now trading about $375 a share. Thanks very much, Shira Overday, Bloomberg Opinion, a columnist, uh, all things technology. We encourage you to follow her on Twitter at Shira Overday and to read all of her opinion columns at Bloomberg.com slash opinions. I want to bring in Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, yesterday's Q&A session, uh, in my opinion, didn't really yield much. It was a lot of grandstanding on the part of politicians, <laughs> and uh, there wasn't much with respect to monetary policy. What are you expecting from today? Yeah, so I think the the Senate, you tend to get higher brow questions than you do in the House of Representatives. Um, you, you'll still get a little bit of grandstanding and certainly some members um, trying to trying to goad uh, Chair Powell into uh, coming to their point their point of view. So things like things like uh, growth, why the Fed's growth forecast or what they are, um, I'm sure will be asked about the balance sheet. Uh, we'll be looking at that, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. And something that I'll be looking listening for is any comments about how concerned uh, about the shape of the yield curve right. that uh, the, the Fed is. That's been brought up in almost every uh, every time we look at the minutes. That seems to be one of the highlights that uh, that some members members are really concerned about right, um, he, about the shape of the curve. But but Fed Chair Powell actually got asked that yesterday mm -hmm. and he didn't seem overly concerned. Uh, he also did indicate uh, that for now they are going to continue with their gradual rate hikes. So the market took this as it's still all guns a blazing. Uh, let's go <laughs> because two year yields and made a new high yesterday, although they are off the, uh, the high uh, that we saw yesterday. Yeah, so so you know some of the some of the reaction I think about the curve is people are concerned that uh, if the uh, if the Fed hikes faster than the market currently expects, that's really the the real risk to the curve at this point because it's it's well known that that, that or at least the market's pricing that the Fed's going to hike uh, you know three more times or so before the end of next year. Um, so so things about the curve that that we're going to I'll be listening for that might be different than yesterday are you know when the curve gets to zero, are you going to stop or how many more hikes are there going to be? Uh, we don't. Uh, you still see slack in the economy, so maybe why are you still talking about this gradual hiking? Like all of those things are um, any change in tune was what we're going to be looking for. Now that being said, I think Chair Powell has done a great job staying on message, sticking exactly to where um, uh, where he was at the last press conference in June, as well as what we've seen in the minutes and and the statements uh, since he became chair. Um, you know, he tends to be not, not quite as verbose as Chair Yellen was, and I think that. That's uh, maybe part of his uh, legal background, where uh, you know he doesn't want to give away uh, too much at, at these at these hearings. But at the same time, he also needs to answer the questions that are asked of him. So I, I think things like about the growth trajectory and and uh, maybe a little bit more on the labor side of things that he was asked about yesterday before the House of Representatives. The uh, head of the committee uh, talked about how the economy is performing. Uh, do you think that that is a, a way to support the policies of the Federal Reserve in as much as they have sort of telegraphed these rate increases? Yeah, uh, you know, I think that when, when we talk about the rate increases and the pace of rate increases, I think one of the things that, that I think 
members of Congress don't want. They don't want the Federal Reserve to kind of derail the economy, and especially now at a time when you're talking about midterm elections coming up in just a few months. Um, you know, you, you're going to have uh, Republicans in particular who seem to be a little bit on the back foot when it comes to um, some elections, particularly in the Senate, that they're um, – they're likely to ask him, you know, to, to stay slow. And, you know, you've just had some members of, of the House of Representatives also saying, like, hey, you, you know, you shouldn't we, – we want high interest rates because we have a lot of savers and retirees, but at the same time, we don't want the economy to falter. So I think he'll be asked about some policies as well. Um, so he'll be asked about things like, you know, what are the tax increases uh, or the tax, uh, the tax decreases and, and the additional federal spending? What does that do to growth? And, you know, they'll try and highlight their, their kind of campaign pledge on the on the Republican side. I think on the Democratic side, they're going to highlight the risks to those policies and, and want Jay Powell to say something. You know, this, yeah, you know the, the, the thing with testimony these days, particularly the last couple of years, is that um, people do try and get, uh, have been trying to get, whether it was as Chair Bernanke, Chair Yellen, and, and now Chair Powell, to kind of take a stand on their side of the issue. So there's just some soundbite that they can use, um, you know, for, for their own political gain. Well, as I was mentioning, Jeb Henserling, he's the uh, committee chairman. He also uh, made in his opening remarks a, a little bit of comments having to do with the Fed's balance sheet and the drawdown of the Fed's balance sheet. Do you think that's going to be a focus? Yeah, I think he'll 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 be asked about that. Uh, you know, you know that the, the chair always is. I think on the Republican side in particular, they think that the Fed's balance sheet is far too big. They, uh, I think, some of them is a lack of understanding of exactly um, you know what the Fed's balance sheet is and how it's been used. Um, but but it's also an important question because the the Fed could like like one of the things that the Federal Reserve could potentially do. It's in their toolkit. I don't think that they'll do it. I think that they don't want to do it. Would be to sell some assets that are on their portfolio. So for, for example, if they want to keep on hiking interest rates, but they want to steepen the curve, one of the things that they can talk about doing uh, would be to be selling these uh, you know, 20-year and 25-year securities that they own, and they own about $300 billion of them. So if they were to start to sell some of them, you'd probably see a significant increase in yields in the back end of the curve. I think that the Fed doesn't want to do that because they see it as disrupting the market more than, than the way that they're letting their balance sheet roll off right now. Um, so I think all of those things um, have to be taken into um, be taken into account. I think Jay Powell will probably talk about that, that, you know, that their balance sheet is unwinding in an orderly fashion right now. Ira, you know, it, it strikes me uh, as we await the Q&A uh, portion of this event with Jerome Powell testifying in front of Congress, uh, it is striking that we're getting more data out of the U.S., particularly housing data this morning, showing that U.S. new home groundbreaking and permits fell in June to the slowest pace in nine months. This is being taken mm -hmm. as another sign of a greater slowdown in the housing market that people expected. People are attributing this to higher mortgage rates as well as just the higher cost of goods and labor. And I'm wondering, you know, this this has to at least weigh a little bit on the Federal Reserve right now, given the fact that you're not seeing expectations of longer term growth increase. In fact, they're coming down the more the Fed hikes. I mean, what? how has he responded to that? Is it just a labor market discussion? You know, well, we're seeing good employment numbers now. So let's just keep on keeping on. 
Well, I think he'll, he'll use that as an excuse as to why they need to go gradually, because there are some fragilities potentially in, in the economy. And, you know, things like housing could be on, on the, the front foot. And certainly housing starts is important for, you know, some, some economic numbers like, G, like GDP, for example, because it's, uh, it, it's housing starts and completions, not existing home sales that go in. That's the component of GDP. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and it is true that you've seen some, somewhat of a slowdown as you've gotten over to about 4%. Uh, um, the, the commitment rate for 30-year mortgages is above 4% now, which you haven't seen in over a decade. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that is on the back of, um, of a lot of uh, of a lot of Fed members' minds is, you know, if, if we continue to hike, will that push up interest rates significantly yeah. more? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why you have mortgage rates where they are is not as much from the interest rate hikes as it is from the runoff of the portfolio, because you've seen spreads widen in mortgage-backed securities. Interesting. I guess I, another sort of uh, statistic that I think uh, could come up is that real wages haven't increased at all over the past year, once including inflation. And I'm wondering, he had he did talk a bit about that yesterday. But, you know, he, do you think that he could be pressed more on that? Is there something more that he could kind of offer up that would be compelling to, to well, you? Yeah, well, there's not there's not a lot that I think what he would say to a question about that is that there's not much that the Federal Reserve can do other than keeping monetary policy reasonably accommodative, which they think that they still are, um, or um, at least some members do, and uh, and because of that, it has to be things like fiscal policy or some kind of um, uh, you know government action as opposed to Federal Reserve action that would potentially raise uh, raise income. So um, you know, I'm sure he'll be asked about trade, right? So some people will say, particularly on the Republican side will likely say that, you know, these trade barriers should increase wages in some sectors that have been held down because of globalization. Um, I, I think that, you know, Chair Powell uh, will probably come down on kind of a pretty neutral stance on, on that if he's asked about, you know, the wage implications of, of any particular, uh, any potential, um, you know, reduction or increase in trade barriers. And he, he'll, he'll say that, like, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous game. I mean, he did come down, you know, reasonably hard against trade barriers last year uh, or last yesterday, rather. And I think that that's something that that will probably come up as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Ira Jersey is our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.